This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. I uh, welcome all of you uh, who are in the Zoom room and to anyone who may be watching across the internet. Uh, we are uh, African American Studies and Public Policy C20AC. Uh, Big Ideas, the American uh, uh, Election 2020. Uh, This is the first time a class at the University of California at Berkeley has attempted to address the presidential or, you know, really any major election in real time during that election. So as a result, this is both a class that is going to look at the deep roots of um, what's at stake in this election, but also attempt to cover it um, in real time in, um, you know, covering uh, recent events, Uh, but also the deep background and the consequences that lie behind them. My name is uh, Michael Mark Cohen. I am an associate teaching professor in American Studies and African American Studies. I have taught here at the University of California at Berkeley since 2004, and it is my distinct honor and pleasure to uh, welcome all of you uh, both, you know, in the in the Zoom room and in um, the many Zoom rooms outside of this one, uh, and I invite you to participate in this uh, attempt at a public political education in the midst of uh, a global crises and a highly consequential presidential election. Now, I, before I formally begin, I want to offer a couple of thank yous, in particular a thank you to the, LN, to the College of Letters and Science and the Big Ideas Project that has allowed this class to get off the ground. Um, I want to thank the people at Berkeley who run the semester in the cloud, which provided technical support for this class. I want to thank the American Culture Center uh, for their contributions to this class, to all the folks at Educational Technology Services at UC Berkeley, and the staff of African American Studies and Public Policy who make this class possible. I want to thank the producers and staff at UCTV that make our, our streaming platform possible. And I also want to make a rare thank you to the admin of the University of California at Berkeley for announcing that we would be going fully remote back in July and not opening too soon and deliberately exposing all of us to a deadly pandemic, like so many other colleges and universities that will heretofore go unnamed. But uh, welcome to all of you. Now, like I said, I'm going to begin here with uh, a bit of current events and sort of what's at stake. And then we will pass, I will pass over to my co-teacher, Saruja Rahman, who will then um, proceed to uh, introduce herself uh, and uh, take up the, the main topic for today. So, Right. The week between the end of August and Labor Day, after the dueling major party nominating conventions marks the start of the traditional presidential campaign in which the voters of the United States will collectively decide which white septuagenarian will lead us as president. With Joe Biden and Kamala Harris officially nominated and elected for the, as the Democratic contenders, and Donald Trump and Mike Pence formally renominated as the Republican ticket for re-election, the race is officially on. For Biden and the Democrats, the convention's message is that Trump has failed the country on the coronavirus response, the economic crisis, and on the question of racial justice. Their slickly produced convention was a festival of sentiment and the politics of representation that offered precious little in the way of clear and popular plan to accomplish their lofty goals. For Trump and the Republicans, the message focused on insisting that Trump is not, in fact, a racist, while uh, promising to restore law and order for white America. 
Over four days, the RNC repeated its message that Trump was, quote, the bodyguard of Western civilization, that urban protesters are violent anarchists and looters who want to, quote, abolish the suburbs, and attacked Joe Biden as, quote, the destroyer of American greatness and, quote, a Trojan horse for the left determined to bring about a socialist utopia. Now, while the DNC worked to tie Trump to the current crises, the RNC rewrote the recent past to suggest that the current crisis was not only well in hand, but it was just a taste of the horrors that awaited us in Joe Biden's America. For all their differences in policy, tone, and agenda, and the increasingly divergent realities and information systems the two parties seem to inhabit, they both launched campaigns under dueling slogans that are, grammatically and metaphorically speaking, nearly identical. Build back better versus make America great again. Again. Within these slogans, America was once whole and good, but has now fallen and must be rebuilt and destroyed by us. That other guy over there is going to destroy everything. Now, for Biden, that back is obviously the Obama era, and this convention was filled with Obama nostalgia, including a vintage performance by the man himself, the one I like to refer to as the Michael Jordan of politics. For Trump, that that once lost, now merely partially restored greatness is harder to locate, in part because it exists in in an explicitly mythic past of patriarchy, suburban segregation, and militant nationalism that could exist anywhere between the 1980s and the 1820s. So launching their campaign by looking back in the face of of an uncertain future, both candidates would typically have started this week by campaigning across several states in a rush to build what pollsters often call a convention bounce, an upward jolt in their polling numbers and campaign donations. The internal polling and political strategists typically dictate the roots of these opening campaign junkets, pushing the candidates from city to city along a tight circuit of battleground states. Let's recall for a moment here that the United States presidential election, not unlike the U.S. COVID-19 response, is not a national project. It is a patchwork of 50 separate state elections, each governed by a different set of state rules uh, for voting and eligibility, in which citizens of each state vote in a winner-take-all system for a set of electors determined by the total number of each state's congressional delegation. That's 100 senators, 435 congresspersons, plus two votes for Washington, D.C., and you get 538 delegates who then vote in what is known as the Electoral College. And it is the majority of these electors, with 270 to win and a 269-269 tie, not statistically negligible in its possibility, that ultimately will determine the winner. Now, this leaves open the possibility that a candidate like George W. Bush in 2000 and Donald Trump in 2016 could lose the national popular election by running up big wins in states like California and Illinois and New York while still losing the election. Don't forget that Hillary won the national popular vote by 2.8 million votes or some 2%. Now, Given this system, the candidates tend to focus nearly all their time in a tiny handful of swing states or battleground states, where one party or the other feels they can win electoral votes from the opponent. While the largest states have been strictly non-competitive throughout the 21st century, with deep blue California's 55 votes and deep red's Texas with 38, other perpetual swing states like Ohio's 18, Florida's 29, Missouri's 10, Pennsylvania's 20, North Carolina's 15, and Colorado's 9 votes form the traditional block of contested battleground states. 
Now, if you take uh, your campaign to your enemy's territory and remake the map, as Obama did in 2008 and as Trump did in 2016, you can win the presidential race. So what we're looking at right now uh, is essentially what this map, this is 270 to win. I highly suggest you go to these websites and click around. You know, you can sort of play with the electoral map, see what the paths of victory are for the respective candidates. It's a fun thing to do in your spare time with all of that nervous energy we all have. Now, remember that polling data does not tell us who is going to win on November 3rd. It just offers us a snapshot of the race in that moment, often with a massive five or six point margin of error. Single polls can be highly unreliable and aggregates or polling averages serve as much better guide to the race, where one can look up, uh, one can look less at the up or down horse race of who's winning or who's losing and see the trend lines, which is basically is the race widening or narrowing. In this case, it is most definitely narrowing. Now, as we all learned in 2016, let's move this here. As we all learned in 2016, Hillary versus Trump, just because Nate Silver's 538.com gave Donald Trump a 28.6% chance of winning does not mean that he is not going to turn up, well, Trumps and run the table in the upper Midwest. This does, this does not make Nate Silver wrong. It was our expectations that were wrong. His model actually worked. A swing of just 2%, i.e. pretty much the margin of error, and a loader, lower than expected voter turnout in Democratic strongholds tilted the race to Trump. Trump turned Hillary's assumed strength in the upper Midwest, commonly referred to as the Rust Belt, into an unexpected battleground. And the former home of, the, uh, home of Midwest progressivism, namely the state of Wisconsin, recently taken over by a conservative wave, became the singular tipping point state. On election day 2016, Hillary's final polling numbers had her up by nearly 6% in Wisconsin, a state she never visited to campaign, never held a rally in, yet eventually lost by a mere 20,000 votes or 0.7%. So when I tell you here, I may need to readjust this. Uh, let's go up. So when I tell you that Nate Silver currently has Joe Biden with a very similar chance of winning in 2020, and with Wisconsin currently set out as the tipping point state, you will know to hold your expectations in check and act accordingly. At this point, this race is either old man's to win or lose. But of course, 2020 is different. Um, not only is neither party particularly clear on how to campaign in the midst of a deadly pandemic, but during this past week, a series of shocking events moved far too fast for the presidential horse race to control the news cycles. Well, let me go back here, um, boom, there, here. We're getting better at this? Bang. Okay. And now... I, will, I just will tell everyone, I, I am not going to show any images, um, uh, uh, videos or images of overt violence in this. Um, I find um, Twitter feeds in which, in the midst of the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, terrifying the, the level of snuff films that we see on our feeds is traumatizing and horrifying. Uh, I am not going to subject, you, you know where to find them if you want to see them. Um, but you, you can sit, I will not show you these videos. I will merely describe the events surrounding them. So on August 23rd, during the weekend between the DNC and the RNC, an unarmed black motorist named Jacob Blake 
was shot by a white Kenosha police officer named Rusty, Rustin Shesky. Officer Shesky shot Blake seven times in the back at point blank range in front of his three children, ages three, five, and six, leaving Blake paralyzed and fighting for his life. Shesky has so far not been charged with a crime. Video of the shooting sparked another round of protest and mass unrest in Kenosha and across the United States. Kenosha, uh, excuse me, is a lakeside city of some 100,000 residents built between the northern suburbs of Chicago and Milwaukee, the largest and most diverse city in uh, Wisconsin. Wisconsin may be best known for its American cheese and being the current home of Cal grad Aaron Rodgers, but in 2015, Wisconsin had the highest rate of incarceration in the country for black Americans. In 2012, the state spent more than a half a billion dollars a day to incarcerate 5,600 black men from Milwaukee County alone. Using the racial dot map that you see here, a few years ago, an ambitious high school student in Wisconsin calculated that 31 of Wisconsin's 56 recognizable black neighborhoods were in fact jails and prisons. These figures make it less of a surprise that when the people of Kenosha rose up in rebellion on Tuesday, August 25th, against the shooting of another unarmed black man, they burned to the ground the local Department of Corrections and Probation Office. Black residents of Kenosha constitute just 7% of the city, yet comprised one-third of the people on probation and nearly half of those in Kenosha's jails. So dramatic was the response. Uh, so dramatic was the response to this uprising that by Wednesday, the Milwaukee Bucks NBA franchise, led by player George Hill, refused to take the court for their playoff game in the Orlando bubble, setting off a wildcat strike wave unique in the history of American professional sports. LeBron James and the Lakers, along with the LA Clippers, threatened to pull out of the already delayed season entirely. The NBA walkout was quickly joined by the far more militant stand by the WNBA, who has quite frankly shown the majority of leadership on this issue in American professional sports. Uh, at this case, led by the Washington Mystics, who appeared on court wearing t-shirts with seven bullet holes drawn on the back in solidarity with Jacob Blake. This wildcat strike spread across the sports world, leading Major League Baseball, easily the most depoliticized of American sporting franchise, tr franchises, uh, and, in the, and uh, as well as Major League Soccer, to cancel uh, games across the calendar, followed shortly thereafter by the highest paid woman athlete in the world, Naomi Osaka, who refused to take the court in a semifinal in a tournament in New York, writing, quote, however, before I am an athlete, I am a black woman. And as a black woman, I feel as though there are much more important matters at hand that need immediate attention rather than watching me play tennis. I don't expect anything drastic to happen to me not playing, but if I can get a conversation started by the majority uh, in a majority white sport, I consider that a step in the right direction. Watching the continued genocide of black people at the hands of the police is honestly making me sick to my stomach. I'm exhausted of having a new hashtag pop up every few days, and I am extremely tired of having the same conversation over and over again. When will it ever be enough? As powerful as that statement was, and the symbolic gestures made by American professional athletes, particularly African-American professional athletes, even this news was quickly overshadowed by the murder of two protesters in Kenosha on the night of August 26th by a white 17-year-old named Kyle Rittenhouse.
Rittenhouse, a self-declared militia member and avid supporter of Donald Trump and the Blue Lives Matter campaign, was arrested at his home in Illinois and charged with murder for the shooting deaths of two Black Lives Matter protesters. The victims have been named as 26-year-old Anthony Huber and 36-year-old Joseph Rosenbaum. After shooting one protester, cell phone video shows Rittenhouse falling to the ground before shooting two more people who attempted to disarm him. After killing two people, Rittenhouse walked towards and then through the police lines where he was allowed by police to flee the state despite protesters' attempts to identify him as the shooter. In a statement, the local Kenosha police blamed the protesters for their own deaths, claiming that had they not been out past curfew, the same curfew that, of course, militia members were out past, then, quote, perhaps the situation that unfolded would not have happened. This statement is further undercut by video evidence demonstrating that members of the Kenosha police collaborated with armed militia members, including Kyle Rittenhouse, tossing them bottles of water and telling them, quote, we appreciate you guys, we really do. Now, all of this happened... Uh, during the third night of the RNC, where Mike Pence heaped praise upon the widow of Officer David Patrick Underwood, who the vice president said was killed during a Black Lives Matter protest in Oakland. The vice president did not mention that Officer Steve Underwood was murdered by an active duty Air Force staff sergeant named Steve Carrillo, who later killed a Santa Cruz County Sheriff, Damon Gutzwilder, on June 6th. Carrillo has been connected by his own hand to the Boogaloo movement, a faction of the armed militia movement that is driven by internet memes and seeks to bring about a second civil war. With the RNC blaming protesters uh, for violence and bringing Mark and Patricia McCloskey, the couple who brandished firearms at Black Lives Matter protesters outside their palatial mansions in St. Louis, it was only a matter of time before the nation split wide open in its interpretation of the mass shooting in Kenosha. By the next day, with Rittenhouse in police custody, Tucker Carlson told his more than 4 million primetimes Fox viewers, quote, how shocked are we that a 17-year-old with a rifle decides they have to maintain, had to maintain order when no one else would. The next day, a man appeared uh, at a ma- wearing a MAGA hat at a, at a QAnon and so-called straight pride rally in Modesto with a T-shirt of Kyle Rittenhouse and the words American Hero. This gentleman insisted that Kyle had merely, ki- in his words, quote, killed two pedophiles. Typically, we might see this as part of the right-wing culture of, quote, owning the libs. But it may better be understood as part of what uh, the Atlantic writer Adam Sewer calls the theater of cruelty. Adam Sewer writes, quote, only the president's, uh, president and his allies, his supporters and their anointed are entitled to the rights and protections of the law and, if necessary, immunity from it. The rest of us are entitled only to cruelty by their whim. This is how the powerful have ever kept the powerless divided and in their place and enriched themselves in the process or perhaps more important, directly in the words of Harvard historian Walter Johnson, whose magisterial history of the city of St. Louis appeared this summer, quote, it was an assertion of white rule over and against the rule of law, white power. Of course, as you may know, someone else was shot on Saturday night in Portland. Uh, where a caravan of some 600 carloads of Trump supporters and members of the far-right Patriot Prayer Group drove into downtown Portland to harass and fight with Black Lives Matter protesters who have laid siege to the federal courthouse for more than 90 days. Now, 
this story is still unfolding. And so I don't want to go into it because the details of it are still quite uh, scattered and need to be collected. The name of the victim has been released. No arrests, to my knowledge, so far have been made. Uh, but the far-right militia groups are vowing revenge for one of their own having been killed. And President Trump has eulogized the Portland victim on Twitter, an honor he has not extended to Huber and Rosenbaum in Kenosha. Now, while a bomb or a gunshot may make a lot of noise, it cannot speak. No act of violence makes its own confession or tells its own story. Political actors from the armed men and their victims, the police who investigate and the prosecutors who will charge the shooters, and the politicians, agitators, and civilians who will seek to insert their narratives and agendas into the swirl of events are the ones who will determine what these tragic events come to mean. It's not just politics or street battles that are contentious. The struggle over representations of meaning itself is being contested every hour of every day as Americans attempt to govern themselves through the vehicle of representative democracy. And it is this category of representation that brings together the idea, right, of meaning, of beauty, of aesthetics, of language and art, and the question of political representation, linking aesthetics and power through a single keyword, perhaps the most important keyword in the field, my field of American studies and cultural studies. Now, these events will inevitably come to mean different things to different groups of people. The story that through stories on CNN and posts on Facebook and 4chan, these events will, I'm afraid, become a polarizing force, driving Americans further, not just into hostile camps, but into two completely diver divergent versions of reality. This is not to say that there is some reality out there that is being distorted through ideological representations. What these events show us is that it is only through these ideological representations that these events become real to us at all. That it is only through representations that we become part of a shared reality and that that reality is rapidly spinning out of control. Pundits and strategists have already begun asking whose campaign message this chaos and violence best suits. Trump obviously wants to tie Biden to the uprisings in Kenosha and Portland, just as Biden wants to tie the vigilante violence to Trump. While the Biden campaign has condemned the violence and challenged Trump to do the same, Trump has promised instead to come to Kenosha tomorrow. Now, for the first time in my lifetime, but by no means for the first time in U.S. history, has a battleground state like Wisconsin turned into a literal battleground. Now, I have to tell you, as a way of ending here, that this is not the place where I wanted to start our discussion of the 2020 election. My intention is not to scare anyone or to elevate our anxiety levels. They're already basically at eyeball or higher level. But political violence is among the most difficult topics to talk about, and yet here we are at the traditional start of the presidential election, talking about the murder of three Americans in the streets during street battles between rival political groups. All of this just happened in the past one week and will continue to shape the race going forward. Now, it will be our responsibility to try and keep track of these events, and I look forward to following with them with you to the best of our ability. So at this point, I would like to turn uh, things over. I will stop sharing my screen, and I will turn things over to my co-teacher um, who will uh, take over uh, from me. Thank you very much. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Saru Jayaraman, and I um, am teaching this class along with Professor Cohen 
<clears throat> My name is Sarjay Raman. As I said, I teach at the Goldman School of Public Policy. Uh, I'm an associate adjunct there. Um, I run the Food Labor Research Center at the Goldman School of Public Policy, and it's a pleasure to be with you all. Outside of my work at UC Berkeley, I um, lead a national organization fighting to raise wages and working conditions in the restaurant industry and the service sector more broadly. And I'll be talking a lot more about that work throughout the semester. Um, but I also am an author. I've written several books on the restaurant industry and on low-wage workers and in the fight against corporate uh, cor corporations in the food space on organizing and social movements. I teach social movements, policy and organizing at UC Berkeley, I have for the last several years, about seven or eight years. Um, before that, I taught at NYU and Brooklyn College in New York. Um, and I speak a lot around the country in Congress and in state legislatures and on television about issues facing low wage workers in America today. So I'm really, really happy to be with you all uh, today, welcome to people who are watching online um, and to all the students in this class as well. So today, what we wanted to do with today's class in the time we have remaining is to actually review exactly what's at stake with this election. This class is about elections 2020, but we wanted to talk a little bit about what, what's really at stake. What are the big kind of forces and what's the context for this particular election? Why do we keep calling it the most historic and important election of our lives. Um, you read an article for today, hopefully by Sheil Membe, who used the, um, the metaphor of breath and said that, um, you know, everybody in this world has the right to, to breathe and, and use that metaphor to say that long before the pandemic was constricting people's breath. And that is, as you know, the pandemic, this particular pandemic, this COVID-19 uh, coronavirus is uh, particularly impactful on your lungs, on your ability to breathe. So from a health sense, there's a real constricting of people's breath. But Ashil was using it as a metaphor to say long before the pandemic, there was an inability for the people of the world to breathe in terms of very deep systemic inequalities, um, inequalities in terms of the economy, in terms of health, in terms of race, um, in terms of gender, in terms of so many other factors that, that breed inequality and oppression for people in this world, and in particular in this country. So he used the metaphor of breath. I'm gonna use another metaphor today. Um, this is a health situation primarily. That is what has shut us down, shut down the economy. It has led to, it has created the foundations for a national uprising around race. Um, I'm going to use the metaphor of a pre-existing condition. And I'm going to say that the pandemic, really, this pandemic revealed pre-existing conditions that existed for the world and in particular for the United States. Pre-existing conditions, uh, as Ashil talked about, of inequality, of oppression, of varying access to healthcare, to the ability to prosper and to succeed, to the, even the ability to, to live and to not have the police kill our children. Um, very, very, very different realities for people in the United States and around the world. 
that was a pre-existing condition. And what I want to talk about today is the ways in which the pandemic has revealed the pre-existing conditions that existed long before this pandemic really created a crisis and that really were already creating a crisis for most Americans and for most people around the world. That pre-existing condition, I wanna talk about it with regard to four particular topics, health and healthcare, um, economic inequality and the issues of the economy, racial inequity, and a lot of what Professor Cohen just talked about in terms of police brutality, but also how that intersects with some of the other structural racial inequities that we see in our country and the environment. So if we think about those four issues and the ways in which this country in particular had pre-existing conditions around those four issues, and I keep using the word pre-existing condition, as you know, they talk about pre-existing conditions with regard to health, that you know, basically the pandemic makes it much worse and much scarier and, and much more riskier for people with pre-existing conditions. People with pre-existing health conditions are at greater risk of catching the pandemic, of getting sick and dying from the pandemic. Well, that is true for this country too. This country had many pre-existing conditions, especially with regard to those four things I just mentioned, health, the economy, race, and the environment that really make this, made this country sick in the same way our body gets sick, made this country sick prior to the pandemic. And the pandemic has not created crisis. The, the pandemic has revealed crisis. So that um, what we see now with this election is not a question of right or left, not just a question of right or left, not just a question of Democrats or Republicans. It is truly a question of do we go back or do we go forward? Because one thing is very, very clear. We had a pre-existing condition, which means there is no return to normal. Normal never existed for the majority of Americans and the majority of people around the world. Normal was death and severe poverty and not, not survival, not survival for a majority of people in this country and around the world. And so if there, that is not normal. That is not normal, death, you know, a, an inability to survive, an inability to thrive, an inability to feed your children, an inability to cover your healthcare costs, that is not normal. It is crisis. And so what I'm trying to say is that crisis existed for a majority of Americans and for a majority of people around the world prior to the pandemic. The pandemic revealed that pre-existing condition. And so the question of this election is not do we choose this septuagenarian, as Professor Cohen, Cohen said, over this septuagenarian? It is a question of, do we make America great again, which means going backward, or do we go forward? And in going forward, do we, do we, do we allow uh, you know, somebody to say, going forward means going back, going forward means returning to normal, or do we push, if Biden wins, do we push for something that never existed, for an entirely new situation that never existed prior to the pandemic? So in that way, I think what I'm trying to say is that this election is, again, not just about returning to normal, because there was no normal. Stasis didn't exist. What we are talking about is the potential to go way back or the potential after the election 
to push for something that never existed? Do we have the opportunity to push for something that never existed? That's the question. And given that that's the question, I hope that we can see this election not as an ending point, but as a beginning point. Not as an ending point, but a pivot point. Not as an ending point, but the chance, the opportunity to do more. And that's why, as part of this class, we'll be talking about social movements and other ways to engage in our democracy beyond voting. Because voting this November is not going to actually answer the question about going back, going forward. It's not going to answer the question about whether we resolve our pre-existing conditions. So let's talk a little bit about those pre-existing conditions. I'm going to um, share my screen. So um, let's talk about the pandemic itself. Um, we know that if you look at this, this comes from the European CDC. Uh, and we know that, uh, unfortunately, both in terms of new cases on a daily basis uh, and in terms of death, America is, in fact, um, at the top. It's the worst. It's, it's, it is really, truly um, at the very top in terms of doing very poorly with regard to both infection and death. We know that Worldwide, there are about 10 million people who've caught the coronavirus or COVID-19, uh, and that there have been 857,000 deaths worldwide. US, the US has 4% of the world's population, but a quarter of all cases and a quarter of all deaths. So I'm gonna say that again, one fourth, I'm sorry, 4% of the world's population, but one fourth or 25% Right. In other words, six times, more than six times our share of the world's population. We have six times that in terms of our share of the number of cases uh, of infection and in terms of deaths. So this is showing that compared to countries we might typically compare ourselves to um, England, uh, Australia, South Korea, China, um, we are doing among the worst in terms of daily cases. India's right up there, and I didn't chart Brazil on here. Brazil is also right up there. What we know about the US, India, and Brazil is that the three of them have leaders at this time that have reacted similarly to the pandemic, that initially denied its importance, and that have been um, kind of reacting to it in different ways than the countries at the bottom of the scale, England, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, and China, in terms of, uh, in terms of healthcare and the provision of, um, you know, testing and tracing and these kinds of things. So if you look at us versus the rest of the world, this is further mapped out here with regard to, if you look at, you know, countries that have more than 10 to 50,000 new cases per day, we are in the top four countries with that kind of a level of daily new cases. And when you look at deaths, again, we, are, we right now have the highest number of recorded deaths. Now, of course, we all know that neither in the United States nor in the rest of the world, um, this is not completely accurate. Even this European CDC chart says we don't know the true number of deaths. But in terms of recorded deaths, we are definitely the highest. Um, again, we are about a quarter of all deaths in the world. 
And again, we have we are, we are among the top four or five countries in terms of the total number of deaths in in the world. And when you hopefully read um, Ed Yong's piece in the Atlantic, which talked about why this might be the case, uh, according to Ed, he said this is chronic underfunding of our public health system. Uh, you know, it it really neutered our ability to prevent the pathogen spread totally inefficient healthcare system that's controlled by HMOs and private actors, totally unprepared for the ensuing waves of sickness, still unprepared, um, did not go about it in a systematic way in terms of testing and tracing. And therefore, we are definitely among the worst in terms of both cases and deaths and the ongoing spread of the virus. Um, you know, a real lack of social distancing, a political or cultural fight over whether to wear masks, um, guidelines largely not followed based on this notion that uh, I have a right, it's my freedom to not follow guidelines, health guidelines. Um, and and in, above all, above all from our leadership, a notion that the economy is more important than our health. And I want to in particular um, lift up two images, one of course from the uh, RNC this past week. This is the White House lawn um, when President Trump was speaking, which in and of itself was a very questionable move in terms of having a convention at the White House, very, uh, very much pushing the boundaries of ethics in, in, in this country. Um, but beyond that, the vast sea of people that were on the White House lawn were neither social distancing nor largely wearing masks. Um, totally flouting the guidelines of the very White House officials that they're standing in front of. And why? Um, because we had a lot of leadership that really, you know, said the economy comes first, the economy is most important. Um, this was a lieutenant governor from Texas, Dan Patrick, who was quoted as saying very openly and continues to say to this day, um, we need to reopen at all costs, even if it kills some old people, so what? In fact, old people should volunteer to die to save the economy and that there are a lot of grandparents out there who'd be willing to sacrifice themselves for the cause of the economy. So if we look at kind of what is different, just going back to these charts, what is different about us versus South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, even China? What is different? I think in, you know, in many cases, it can come down to this, the idea that in this country, the economy, at least for some in leadership, is more important than our health. In this country, it is important to think about profit over people. In this country, it has been a case of severe underinvestment in care, in healthcare, in education, in teaching, in, in, our, in the economy, in, in the sense of the most vulnerable people in our economy. It has been a severe underfunding and underinvestment in people at the expense of profit. Um, and I, and I, I don't think I'm saying anything that they themselves wouldn't say. These are quotes by people on the right themselves. This is Dan Patrick, Lieutenant Governor of Texas, saying this, not us paraphrasing him. And of course, we know that all of this impacted people of color much, much more severely than white people. We know that if you look at this chart, um, Native Americans in particular have had the highest rates of both cases and hosp hospitalization 
um, five times of the rate of hospital hospitalization of the rest of the population, in particular white people. Um, African Americans have had the highest level of death, double the level of death compared to uh, white white people and the overall population. And that this has been in large part because of poverty, because of pre-existing conditions, because of health disparities that existed prior to the pandemic, both disparities in terms of people's health and in terms of disparity with regard to their access to healthcare. Um, and one note I wanna make on this that we'll be talking about later in the semester is incarceration. Um, we know that in prisons, there was an inordinately high level of uh, the pandemic spread because we know that indoor spaces, I think what I read was that outdoor spaces have something like 15 times less risk than indoor spaces. And so when you have a lot of people indoors together, not socially distancing because they're in prison or in jail, you're going to have very, very high levels of cases. And in this country, again, I, I want to point to something that a future speaker is going to talk about. This numerical, the statistic that I gave of 4% of the world's population, 25% of the world's cases, 25% of the world's deaths is strangely a statistic that gets repeated on a lot of issues. We have 4% of the world's population, but 25% or a quarter of the world's incarcerated people. We have 4% of the population, but 25% of the world's carbon emissions. We have 4% of the world's population, but 25% of the nations of the world's uh, cases of, of, of COVID-19 and deaths. And, and all of these things are related. We have 4% of the world's population, but one fourth, a quarter, 25% of, um, of all of these ways in which we have, again, put profit over people. We have put profit over people in each of those instances. There was a prison in Ohio with a, with that, that was reported to have 2,000 cases of the pandemic with a capacity of 1,500 beds. I'm gonna say that again. There was a prison in Ohio that had 2,000 cases of the pandemic with a capacity of 1,500 beds, which means that this prison was already way overcrowded and resulted in, if not 100% of people getting the pandemic, very near that. And so what we have is a situation where, because you have an over-incarceration of people of color, um, a disproportionate amount of lack of access to healthcare and health disparities among people of color, you end up with this chart, with people of color, particularly Black and Native American populations, having absurdly high, much higher rates of catching the pandemic, being hospitalized, and dying from it as a result of all of these pre-existing conditions that existed prior to the pandemic. Now, in each of these areas, I want to give us a little bit of hope. You know, we're talking about a context for an election. So what is possible in terms of thinking about the future? In each of these areas, health, the economy, race, and the environment, there is the potential to, because this pandemic has created a reset, completely reimagine everything about our world. And in the case of, the, of this, what I've just spoken about, health, the pandemic, there is an overwhelming new support, uh, a much wider support than existed before for universal access to healthcare. There is a lot more conversation about Medicaid and access to Medicaid and making Medicaid universal. There is a lot more talk 
also about letting people go, letting people who are in prison go, who are there for especially minor offenses, who've been in jail or prison for decades and are senior citizens. Um, and so we're gonna hear from a speaker in a few weeks who works on mass incarceration. That is his area of focus. And he's gonna talk a lot about, there has been a lot of progress in, in many parts of the country prisons actually letting go a lot of folks that maybe should have never have been there in the first place. It is part of reimagining both healthcare and our criminal justice system that has some bipartisan support and is part of the, um, is part of the overall kind of wave of change that is possible if, if we think in a forward way, we reimagine and we move past our pre-existing conditions. So, going to move on to the economy and say, in terms of the economy now, I think it's important to understand that the whole world did not shut down in the way that we shut down because of our um, lack of, again, testing and contact tracing and kind of strategic focus, intentional focus early on with the pandemic we had to shut down in ways that other countries didn't have to, and for longer periods of time. We also went through fits and starts. We closed down, reopened, closed down again because of the spread of the virus in ways that other countries didn't necessarily have to. And so what is so ironic about that is that we did all of that because there was a desire, as we talked about earlier, to put the economy first, to put the economy above our health. But that resulted in frankly, the economy tanking as a result of the ways in which we prioritize the economy over our health. And that resulted in, again, these fits and starts and mass shutdowns. So since uh, the pandemic's initial shutdown in middle of March, 48 million people have filed for unemployment insurance. 48 million people have filed for unemployment insurance. And uh, I and my colleagues at One Fair Wage and the Food Labor Research Center did some um, research as to whether unemployment insurance was actually reaching people. This we published in mid-May. So this is two months after uh, the shutdown, two months. And we looked at nationwide per state. This is, the, this is data based on what they reported to the federal government in terms of the percentage of people who applied for unemployment insurance and actually got it. Nationwide, only 56%, so only a little bit more than half of people who applied for unemployment insurance by May, two months in, had actually received it. And you can see some states that are truly verging on the ridiculous. Um, you see states that have uh, very, very, very low rates of accessing unemployment insurance. Um, including, uh, for example, Florida. Um, Florida, only 32% of people who applied for unemployment insurance actually received it. Um, Hawaii, similar numbers. Uh, California, frankly, was not that much better. 41% of people who applied actually got it. Um, so depending on the state, we saw varying levels of people not being able to access unemployment insurance and it's important, I will spend a little bit more time on this when we get to income inequality, but it's important to understand a little bit of why that's the case. Unemployment insurance was a system set up during the Great Depression as part of the New Deal uh, that was intentionally set up to deny people benefits 
so that they would take any low-wage job that came their way. It was, it's very blatant if you read, kind of you go back and you read the history of how unemployment insurance was set up. There was a similar debate as is going on today with the Republicans as to, well, if we provide benefits, people aren't going to be willing to take any low-wage job that comes their way. And so the system was set up to deny people unemployment insurance if they didn't take any low-wage job that came their way. And it was, it was set up underfunded and underinvested in to make sure that it was hard to access, very hard to access, slow in processing people's claims so that people would be turned off from getting benefits. And the worry was, and the worry continues to be, we want to make it difficult to get because if we can turn people away from it, that will make them work. The concern is that if they get benefits, they're just going to kind of live on the hog, high on the hog, right? They're just going to sit around and live on that money forever. They're not going to want to work. Um, they're lazy. And so therefore, we should make it very difficult to access. I worked with people who counted that they called their state unemployment insurance offices over 10,000 times. I worked with people who sat on the phone for 72 hours straight waiting for somebody to respond to them. I worked with people, uh, these are people who I work with in my organization who shared stories of um, being told they were gonna access unemployment insurance, but then never getting it. Um, we, we, on the whole in this country, saw an absurdly difficult process in terms of people accessing unemployment insurance. And of course, this was much, much worse uh, for low-wage workers who, of course, are overwhelmingly people of color and women. Um, so you can see here that unemployment did not hit people of all races equally. Um, the highest rates of unemployment were, uh, in particular, women and Latinas in particular, uh, Black women and Asian women just behind, um, certainly all women having a higher unemployment insurance, I'm sorry, unemployment rate than white men. Why is this? Why would it be that people of color and women would have higher unemployment rates than white men? And one thing I want to say that's particularly um, devastating about this is that right before the pandemic shut down, we had reached a, a moment, a, an important moment in history for women. For the first time in world history, we reached a moment where uh, women's participation in the labor force actually exceeded men's participation in the labor force. Now, that was always true for women of color. Women of color always worked the same or more than men of color. But for white women and women on the whole, we had just finally reached a moment where women's participation in the labor force had just equal or exceeded men. And all of those gains were lost during the pandemic because the jobs that were most likely to be shut down the jobs that I represent, the low-wage jobs, restaurant, retail, healthcare, um, although healthcare should have been invested in and those jobs should not have been lost, they were in the largest numbers. Low-wage worker jobs were the hardest hit. Um, you saw the most loss among low-wage worker jobs. And of course, women and people of color disproportionately held those jobs. So that's why you see much higher levels of unemployment among women and people of color. Um, and meanwhile, while this was happening, we saw several brands uh, just skyrocket during this period. We saw several brands, as you saw low-wage workers in massive dire straits, and I'm going to talk in a minute about the restaurant industry in particular and the kind of dire situation 
that millions of workers in that industry find themselves in. But it's important to keep in mind, not everybody has been struggling during this pandemic. The brands that I've listed here on this slide have all experienced more than a 25 or 30% increase in stock prices during the pandemic. Regeneron is one of the nation's largest, the world's largest pharmaceutical companies. It's been doing really, really well. Um, Citrix and Zoom are both, we're using Zoom right now, Citrix and Zoom are both doing really well, uh, profiting from the pandemic. Netflix, I'm sure you all know, and from your own personal experience, has been Zooming Clorox, is the primary company with disinfectants and wipes and sanitizers. They've been doing amazingly well. Smuckers, um, there's been an overwhelmingly, you know, increase with people at home in peanut butter and jelly <laughs> and other such uh, items. And Amazon, Amazon uh, may be the worst of all because um, they have been engaged in a lot of very, uh, you know, dubious practices with regard to their delivery workers and warehouse workers during the pandemic. Um, they have also been engaged in a lot of dubious practices with regard to monopoly and, and antitrust issues, uh, and their profits have exceeded during this, during this pandemic. Important to keep in mind as we talk about one sector of workers that I represent that have really, really been extraordinarily hard hit. So I keep talking about pre-existing conditions. The pre-existing condition in the restaurant industry was that it was the nation's largest and fastest growing private sector employer, almost 14 million workers. So nearly one in 10 American workers, but also the lowest paying. So I, I just wanna stop and say, that's a pre-existing condition, not just for that industry, but frankly, for our whole economy. This is what's important to understand. We were teetering as a nation on some kind of economic crisis or collapse prior to the pandemic, because what you had was the nation's largest and fastest growing private sector employers paying the least. And you do have to think about what happens to a country when the nation's largest and fastest growing jobs, the nation's largest and fastest growing industries pay the least. That means all new entrants into the economy, whether they're immigrants, formerly incarcerated individuals, women, young people, people entering the economy, these are largely the jobs that are available. Restaurant jobs, retail jobs, and they are the lowest paying jobs in our economy, which means we are growing. These low-wage jobs, in particular restaurants and retail, we are growing the low-wage floor of the economy. Prior to the pandemic, we had gotten to at least one in three working Americans working full-time and living in poverty. And we were getting very close to one in two working Americans working full-time and living in poverty. Of course, it depends on how you measure poverty. Some people use the federal poverty rate, which is extremely and kind of ridiculously low. It's less than $20,000 a year. I mean, that's not poverty. That's just, that is just destitution, complete inability to survive. If you look at poverty in terms of just the inability to feed, you know, to pay bills, to feed kids without assistance from the government. If you look at poverty in that way, then we were getting very close to one in two working Americans working full time and living in poverty. Now, even without a pandemic, we were very, very close to that impacting our GDP and these very same industries themselves. 
Um, so in the restaurant industry, for example, we see three tiers of the industry, fine dining. So that's like the fancy fine dining restaurants. We saw family style or casual restaurants. That's the IHOPs and the Denny's and the Applebee's and the Olive Gardens. And we saw fast food. And we saw an explosion in the, in the, in the top in fine dining, an explosion in growth in fast food, and a stagnation, a stagnation of those family style. If, even if you go to their quarterly shareholder reports, you would see stagnation. Why? Because who used to eat at the Olive Gardens and the Applebee's and the IHOPs? Working people, and in particular, restaurant workers. So by paying people so little and having their wages stagnate for so, so long, in the case of restaurant workers, their, wa their wages had stagnated for 30 years, had not gone up for 30 years with inflation or anything else. They had just stagnated. If you have stagnating wages, you're going to cannibalize your own industry because the very people who used to consume can no longer do so. It's the, it, is the, it is the epitome of what Henry Ford used to say as this, the founder of the, Ford, of the Ford Motor Company. He would say, I want to make sure that the people who are working on my assembly line can afford the cars that are coming off the assembly line. If not, my company will fail. And that is what was happening, not just with the restaurant industry, but very large sectors of our economy, restaurants, retail, especially home health care, because the workers in those industries are the largest and fastest growing sectors unable to consume. So what I'm trying to tell you is that we were on the verge of crisis, economic crisis prior to the pandemic. The pandemic just revealed and exacerbated the pre-existing condition. So in the case of the restaurant industry, I mentioned that our wages had stagnated for 30 years. That's because of something called the sub-minimum wage for tipped workers, which I'm going to explain later in the class. But just to be brief, the sub-minimum wage for tipped workers has been frozen at $2.13 an hour for the last 81, I'm sorry, 30 years. It's gone up from zero to $2 over 81 years since the minimum wage was first established as part of the New Deal. Uh, and so you had nearly 14 million workers with a federal minimum wage of $2.13 an hour. Overwhelmingly female population, 70% of tipped workers in America, and these are waitresses and bartenders. So 70% of workers in the industry who earn tips were women, largely waitresses in very casual restaurants, struggling to survive on very low wages and tips. Um, I used to call it living tip to mouth. Your wage is so low, $2.13, it goes to taxes. You're living completely off your tips. Now that was the pre-existing condition. Come March, middle March, about 10 million of these workers lost their jobs. 10 million. And I gave you a number prior that 56% of Americans overall were able to access unemployment insurance. Among tipped workers and restaurant workers, less than 40% were able to access unemployment insurance because of tips, because tips created this horribly unreported, uh, underreported, messy system that state unemployment insurance offices rejected. So we had millions of workers who were paid two and three dollars across the country who came to us and said, my state unemployment insurance office is saying you earned too little to qualify for benefits. Your subminimum wage of two dollars plus tips was too low to meet the minimum threshold to qualify for benefits. So again, you've got to, you've got to think about these two systems that were set up at the New Deal, a sub-minimum wage for tipped workers and an unemployment insurance system set up to deny people converging 
in this moment of crisis when 10 million people, not a tiny population, 10 million people have lost their jobs and basically denying millions and millions and millions of largely women, single mothers with families trying to feed their kids, denying them access to benefits. And the data I showed you was from mid-May. The number that I'm giving you, 60%, is from mid-May. Now here we are in September, and you're talking about five or six months of people without income, and what have they done? How have they managed? Um, when we, start, we started an emergency relief fund in mid-March, we raised about $23 million to hand out cash payments to these workers. When we started the relief fund, workers told us, thank you so much, this is gonna allow me to buy groceries for my kids. Six months later, they are writing to us and saying, I am now having to steal food for my children. I don't have money for gas to get to the, the food bank to get food. Uh, when I get to the food bank, uh, the food is gone or it's spoiled. I had a mother say, how long do you expect me to feed my kids on bread and maple syrup? And lots of people sharing pictures of their uh, electricity bills saying, we just don't know how much longer we can be in touch. So it's been a very heartbreaking time. And, and I just don't think people understand the scale with which this is happening. I just wanted to share some of the really truly heartbreaking um, notes we got as we, uh, as we were sending out this cash payment. This is just 220,000 people have applied to our fund. We've given out 35,000 checks to workers of $500 each. We still have a long way to go. It's a drop in the bucket. Um, but I'm just gonna read this, this last one. So incredibly grateful for the 500. I've already lost everything and living with my mother. I was about to lose my vehicle and ready to throw in the towel. It went straight to my vehicle payments to get me on track. I have no clue what I'll do to stay on track, but it's incredibly nice to be able to breathe for one day without freaking out all day. Thanks so much. It means more than you will ever know. And I've been, re I've been reading these incoming notes for the last five months, six months. It, it's heartbreaking what people are. These are working people, people who work two and three jobs to stay afloat, uh, people who some, you know, have children and are trying to feed their children and just completely unable to do so. And in this moment, um, many, if not have already lost their homes, are on the verge of losing their homes, certainly not able to pay the bills. So we're talking about a very, very dire situation, but I said for each of these sections, I want to give us some hope because what's extraordinary to me is that these workers are rising up in a way that I have not seen in 20 years of organizing. Um, a lot of workers now are being asked to go back to work. You know, I told you the way unemployment insurance is set up, the system is set up so that if you don't take any low-wage job that comes your way, you will lose benefits. So now as restaurants are reopening, closing, reopening, closing, it's such a crazy, chaotic time right now in the restaurant industry because some states are reopening at partial indoor dining, some saying no indoor dining, only outdoor dining. It's chaotic. It's crazy. And workers are being called back to work for a sub-minimum wage of 2 or $3 when tips are down 50 to 75%, depending on the state. And so workers are between a rock and a hard place. They're being told, either take the job and lose your benefits, or their other choice is to refuse the job because they're saying, why would I put my life at risk and my children's life at risk? If I'm living with elderly parents, their lives at risk, why would I put everybody's life at risk of catching the coronavirus? 
for a two or three dollar wage when tips are down 50 to 75 percent. And that choice has become much more dire as the weather changes. I know for those of us living in California, we don't experience these changes, but for people in the rest of the country, it's gonna to start to get cold in about 30 days. In 30 days. And so all of the outdoor dining that we've seen in New York and Massachusetts and Chicago is gonna to have to, if at all, if anything, become indoor dining. And indoor dining has been named one of the top most risky places to catch the coronavirus, to catch COVID-19. And so you're seeing a situation in which workers are making this very real, horrible you know, choice, life or death, my life or my livelihood. And they are choosing, um, they are choosing their lives. And so this is an image from about 30 minutes ago in Times Square. Uh, workers in the organization that I lead are on strike. Um, they've constructed a 24-foot uh, Elena, the essential worker. This is just half of her. The full, uh, the full body will go up, is already up probably. I just haven't gotten, been texted the images yet. I'll share it with you on Wednesday. Um, but workers in New York and Chicago went on strike today saying, we refuse to go back to work without a full minimum wage and tips on top. Um, we refuse to go back to work without safety protocols. And we're seeing low-wage workers, not just in the restaurant industry, but in nursing and healthcare and education, say we refuse to go back to work. Um, and, and it is a hopeful moment because what we know from social movement work, and we'll talk a lot, mo a lot more about this later in the semester, is that the more people who are engaged in disruptive activity, contentious disruptive activity, the more change happens. Uh, and of course, we saw it with um, racial equity and um, the fight over police, but we're also seeing it in the economy and we're also seeing it among workers who are saying, uh, we're just not going to do this anymore. I wanna make two points about this. One is that there's an opportunity to think about relief differently. We gave out these relief checks that I just talked about and with the relief checks, organized workers who are coming to us for relief to vote. Um, we did this as part of a program that many UC Berkeley students have been a part of called Freedom Summer, where UC Berkeley students through the African American Studies Department and my class were able to talk to workers in those battleground states that Professor Cohen talked about, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and now Wisconsin and Florida, key states for this election, and talk to low-wage workers about their very dire situation and how voting could have an impact on their lives. And we're actually running the internship class this fall. If people want to get credit for learning how to talk to low-wage workers, like the ones you see on your screen, um, that are really struggling with a very dire situation right now about voting, you can sign up for that class and read, actually, who's one of our GSIs, uh, is helping to get people signed up for that class. So if you wanna email him, maybe read, you could put the class number and, the, and your email so people can contact you. But So that's one thing. We can do relief differently in that we can not just provide immediate relief, but through relief actually collectivize people's voices uh, for change. The second thing I wanna mention is that there is this moment right now, besides workers rising up, where consumers are increasingly saying, wow, uh, these workers are essential. <laughs> now these workers were doing their work prior to the pandemic, just as they're doing now. They were restaurant workers and grocery store workers and healthcare workers. 
um, there's a new term now for workers who are working on the front lines serving us during a pandemic. People are calling them essential. Um, and, I, and it really does, one, point to a pre-existing condition. Again, these workers were essential, but were never paid or treated for their essentialism, never valued for their essentialism. They were paid $2.13 an hour. Now, now there's an increased awareness among consumers that these workers are not only essential in what they do, but that their health and safety is essential. Because if they get sick and they're delivering something to our door, be it food or, you know, something we bought on Amazon, they are, they, if they're sick, it, we risk us getting sick as well. And so our interdependence with these essential workers who've been at the bottom of the economy has become clearer than ever before. And I think that is definitely something hopeful to think about in the context of this election. Again, will we in this election honor these essential workers for their essentialism or will we continue to uh, debase them? All right, so we talked about, uh, and Professor Cohen already got into a lot of it, the third area that I wanna talk about where America had a pre-existing condition, racial inequity. and you know, a lot of what's come up, obviously, over the last several months is policing, but we all know, or many of us know from data and from real life experience that racial inequity extends beyond policing and that policing is so interrelated to so many other issues that people of color, in particular Black people, face in the United States and have faced for the last many centuries. Um, so, uh, you know, all of you have seen and maybe many of you have been a part of huge mass uprisings over the last many months since the murder of George Floyd um, that have been, you know, ongoing, even if the media has turned away from them and have been reignited, of course, by the, uh, the shooting, the near assassination uh, of Jacob Blake. Um, so we know that this is a moment where we are finally having to deal with uh, our long history of racism, of white supremacy, uh, that, that stems, frankly, from the founding of this country. Um, but I want to make sure to just point out that this movement has been around for decades. It's not something that erupted right now. Um, even the latest iteration of it, which is Black Lives Matter, has been around, as you all know, since 2013, um, founded by three women of color, Black women, Alicia Garza, Patrice Colors, and Opel Tometi. We're hoping that Alicia, who's a friend of mine, can join us, um, you know, in a few weeks to speak about the moment and the movement. Um, certainly, we'll have other leaders in Black Lives Matter and, and the Movement for Black Lives joining us in class. Um, but it's important to note that this movement had been around since 2013, addressing America's pre-existing condition of racism, um, again, even before the pandemic and even before Trump was elected. Trump's election in 2016 really revealed the division and the existence of white supremacy, the, the the, 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 the severity and the scale and the existence of white supremacy in the United States uh, embodied by our president and our president really, you know, very much uh, uplifting various white supremacist groups, supporting them, retweeting them, honoring them. Um, and so, so it's important to note that this fight had been around for a very long time. The latest iteration had been around since 2013. 
that the president really kind of fomented and agitated and increased the fervor and the division and the violence around this movement. Um, and then, of course, George Floyd was a breaking point. And we could spend a lot of time asking ourselves, you know, and, and lots of people have a lot of different theories as to why, why was that moment the moment? There have been so many police killings. They're so constant. They're consistent. They've been around forever. Um, they, since the black, I mean, they've, it's just been a constant killing of black people by the state for forever since the country was founded. So what was it about George Floyd that created these, these very large uprisings worldwide? And, and we could talk about a lot of different things, but right now in the context of this class and the things we've just talked about, a pandemic that showed that, that revealed disparities for people of color, both in terms of health and in terms of incarceration and so many other issues, an economy that was teetering already on the brink and when it shut down, just devastated millions of low-wage workers who are disproportionately people of color and black people in particular, all of that providing the foundation and the fodder for this moment when a man was so brutally and so um, blatantly killed by somebody who looked into the camera at us while he murdered him. Um, so it's important to understand the intersectionality of these issues, that it is not just about police killing and police brutality. It is about police brutality as it relates to the general, um, you know, disparity that exists for people of color and black people in particular on all the other issues that we just talked about. Um, you read Miriam Kaba's article about defunding the police and that yes, she says we do, we are meaning defunding the police um, because for so long the police have not functioned as we imagine them. They're not out there saving us from murderers and, and criminals and and most of their arrests are not actually felonies. For the most part, they are policing communities of color. They're mainly dealing with traffic and loitering. Um, these are basically ways to enforce the racial order. And, and what's also important to note is that it's not like um, in the period leading up to this moment, you know, there was stasis. It's not like in the period leading up to this moment, Funding the, for the police had been constant. Funding for the police has dramatically increased. And this is data from uh, the L. Baker Center for Human Rights. The director of the L. Baker Center will be joining us in a few weeks talking about how this fight has been on for a long time here in the Bay Area even. Um, but you can see, whether it's Alameda County or Oakland or California, you're talking about between two and 300% increases in funding for the police over the last several decades. So the idea of defunding the police is not, is not actually just, is not a radical idea about going somewhere we've never been. In some ways, it's going back to where we were um, before massive increases in funding for the police occurred all over this country and unfortunately, particularly here in California and the Bay Area. Um, and what is the alternative to this? What is the alternative to funding for the police? Again, we're talking about the context of this election and the choices we have in front of us. We could go back to this, to just constant increases in funding for police and military, or we could go to a new world we've never been in before, not returning to normal because look at this image, it is not normal. 
It is not normal for over the last three decades, there to have been a nearly 300% increase in funding for the police in Alameda County. That is not normal. Um, you know, do we, again, do we go back to continuing to increase funding for the police or do we go forward to a new world in which we address the pre-existing condition, which was again, an overinvestment in protecting capital and some of us, the people that Professor Cohen read about when he talked about the cruelty article, protecting some of us at the expense of most of us and in particular, people of color and black people in particular. So um, as you read in Kianga Taylor's article, she says, of course there are protests, the state has failed black people on a number of issues. And I just think it's important to note that um, there is this real intersectionality that's been incredible about this moment where the George, Floyd, the George Floyd breaking point has to be seen in the context of a pandemic, has to be seen in the context of a massive economic shutdown. Uh, I mean, even for George Floyd himself, George Floyd worked in a restaurant. He was a restaurant worker. The person who killed him actually worked in the same restaurant. They knew each other. They were both security or bouncers in a Mexican restaurant in Minneapolis. And they had often disagreed George Floyd and his killer had often disagreed over treatment of people of color coming into the Mexican restaurant. His murderer would want to, uh, you know, be very rough and abrasive and aggressive with the people of color coming into the restaurant and George Floyd disagreed. So these were two people who knew each other and one of whom murdered the other with the full power of the state and his uniform and the government and the president behind him. Uh, and so it's important to note George Floyd was a restaurant worker. It's important to note he was unemployed. It's important to note that as um, either Kianga Taylor or uh, Miriam Kaba talked about, the crime that the police supposedly showed up for was a crime of, of poverty, of being poor, of being unemployed. And so again, it's important to note the intersectionality of these issues. I had a New York Times reporter call me a few weeks after the uh, after uprisings began around the country and the globe and said, we're noting something different about these uprisings. We're noting that, um, you know, in the past when there were police killings, often people of color would rise up in their own neighborhoods and there would be looting and arson and, uh, you know, just unrest in communities of color. And they said, this time we're noting that there's looting and unrest uh, in Chicago's toniest uh, Avenue and in Manhattan, in 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 you know that there are there's graffiti not just on the local corner store but on the Apple Store and on these big big box you know very kind of uh, representations physical representations of the one percent and the elite and so I talked to her and she um, ended up quoting me about the fact that there is a moment now where more we've seen among restaurant workers as you saw from the image. And, and, and from low-wage workers around the country, a real kind of awakening or arising, not just around police brutality, but around the intersection between police brutality and economic inequality that has been, again, revealed by the pandemic. And the hopeful part of this, we talked about this already, but um, in Oakland, we know that the vast majority of what the Oakland police responds to is, again, a form of uh, basically racial policing or racial control, enforcing the racial orders. It's very minimal 
um, mental health, medical, welfare checks, uh, quote unquote disturbances, um, homelessness related issues, substance abuse, all of this is related to poverty. And since poverty and race in America are so deeply interconnected, also related to um, maintaining the racial order. So for me, the hope is the spread of this around the country and around the globe. These are protests all over the country and all over the globe in the last couple of months. And in particular, the fact that you see this in even very um, white areas of the country, there's a real uh, you know, awakening among white America as well about the, again, pre-existing condition of historical and structural racism in the United States and the fact that it's gotta go. So um, we could talk a lot more about this. I wanna move on to the fourth area, which is climate change. Again, a pre-existing condition that I'm sure many students in the class were very involved in, aware about. Um, but I think even for those who want to put profit above all else, even for those who want, who, who lead this country and are thinking about, again, Profit is prime is is most important. That's the that is the priority. Um, if if even if we think about it that way, what we're experiencing right now and have experienced over the last many decades is costing the country billions of dollars. Again, a pre-existing condition prior to the pandemic, um, and that these events are increasing in their rapidity, in their severity. You all know this from what's happening here in California and frankly, the entire West of Western United States, um, massive wildfires at a scale and spread that we have not typically seen, have not seen, and at the same moment, really devastating hurricanes all over the country. And of course we know all of this was already impacting communities of color more than other communities. Uh, and when you combine those frontline communities facing this, communities of color facing this, when you combine that with the health disparities we've already talked about, the economic disparities we've talked about, and the racial uprisings, um, you really have a moment, again, in which we are <laughs> kind of, as Professor Cohen said, we, we are not just at a question point or a crossroads, we're truly in a battle over our survival and our future uh, we're truly in a battle over the survival of the country and the planet. Um, I will say on the hopeful side with regard to climate change, and I know you all know this, but it's worth noting, there's been such a dramatic reduction in travel, such an increase in people's understanding that remote work is uh, a possibility and a reality. There's no need to drive to work um, when you can work online. Uh, you read Arundhati Roy's piece in the Financial Times about uh, India and the, the devastation in India, but also some of these beautiful things they're seeing, like peacocks in the streets and the ability to see the Himalayas for the first time from parts of India that had never seen them before. You know, there's real, uh, <laughs> there's real hope, because even as we are not breathing in the sense of uh, experiencing the pandemic in our lungs, not breathing in the sense of people of color being killed in the United States, literally their breath being cut off by murderous police officers, um, and you know wildfires that are restricting our breathing here in the Western United States. In that same moment, there is an overall clearing of the air 
that is possible if we continue to think about our world differently and our work differently and the way that we travel differently post-pandemic. So I think what's important about Arndathi Roy's piece is, is what, what many of us have been talking about. With the pandemic, I was part of forming a broad coalition with many other leading social justice organizations around the country in reproductive justice, in climate justice, in racial justice, in criminal justice, in environmental justice. We all came together and created a website called There Is No Going Back and a, and a kind of a hashtag reimagine. And we've been putting out there um, kind of this idea that we need to reimagine our world. We need to reimagine every aspect of our society. And the reason we did it was the fear that even if this election results in a different president, that there would be a desire of the Democrats, if they win, to simply return to normal. And again, for those of us that are in this reimagine coalition, the thinking is that there was no normal. Normal did not exist, especially for people of color, especially for low-wage workers, especially for the vulnerable among us. So it is really, truly not an election between two parties, not an election between uh, two people, um, but rather two versions of our world. Again, whether we go back or whether we go forward, there is no staying stasis. There is no, um, there is no staying the same. And the other piece you read was the piece by John Lewis, um, who talked about good trouble and standing up for what we believe in. He talked about voting as an element of that, but hopefully you all know the history of John Lewis. We can talk about it more when we talk about social movements, but John Lewis is that voting was not the only thing he did. He was involved in direct action, social movement, contentious activity. Um, and so it's important to know that history and to know what else will be needed to put that stake in the ground to say, we don't, we don't need to go back because we had a pre-existing condition. We need to go forward. And I'll just close uh, by one really interesting, the quote uh, at the beginning of, or at the end of Ed Yong's piece in The Atlantic, that pandemic, what it truly means when you look at its Greek roots is all people, pan, all demic, comes from demos of the people. And that the pandemic has taught us that all people are interdependent, that what happens to restaurant workers affects you. What happens to uh, black men in Kenosha affects us here in Oakland. What happens to uh, the 99% actually impacts the 1%. Um, all of us are interdependent and interrelated and so the question on the table for this election is in a demos, in a, in a society that is supposedly democratic, who ultimately will decide whether we go back or forward on healthcare, the economy, race, immigration, climate change, and every other issue that affects us? Who will decide those questions? Is it us, the people? Is it the 1%? Or is it the demos? That is truly the question of the moment. So I'll stop there. And uh, that was outstanding. Thank you. Uh, stunning, stunning. Absolutely. Um, questions in the moments we have left. I, I, she ended with a, a Professor Jairalman ended with a, a Greek word, uh, the pandemic. I would also offer the one of apocalypsis or apocalypse, which we may feel like we're experiencing, which in Greek means an unveiling. It doesn't mean the end of the world. It means a revealing or an unveiling. 
And we might think of this moment in those terms as well. The, the horrors of this current crisis are an unveiling of, as uh, was put to you, the pre-existing conditions uh, under which we um, find ourselves under such crisis. So um, brilliant, outstanding. Um, questions, folks, can you uh, raise your, let me actually go to, uh, to Karen uh, Viegas. She, she was monitoring questions on the chat. Do you wanna draw any questions out uh, to the top, please? Hi, yes, sure. Uh... So we just had a question from um, earlier. We had a question from Sharika Zutsky. Uh, sorry if I mispronounced that. Do you want to say your question? Yeah, it's um, Sharika Zutsky, but that's fine. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, so my question was essentially trying to understand the requirements that are in place to get unemployment benefits because Professor Jairaman mentioned that, you know, if, you're, um, if your hourly wage is too low, you can be denied it or, you know, I, I just wanted to understand what uh, are the general requirements and if they're controlled on a federal or a state level. So great, so great a question. I'm gonna respond to that quickly. So um, there, there's state unemployment insurance and there's federal unemployment insurance. But what's important to note is that all unemployment insurance benefits, whether they come from the state or they come from the federal government, they all run through state unemployment insurance systems, which have been severely underfunded. Most state unemployment insurance systems are using uh, phone and computer systems that were set up literally in the 1970s and never invested in, literally, never invested in to be improved since the 1970s. And so whether or not you're getting money from the state or the federal government, you first have to understand that putting aside requirements, you are gonna have a hard time accessing, even getting a response from the unemployment insurance system because they have very, very outdated underfunded systems intentionally, again, because there is this ethos in America. And at one point with both parties, not just the Republicans, there is this ethos and concern among, um, frankly, capitalists, people who control capital, that workers will not return to work if the unemployment insurance system is too easy to access. So you want to make it as difficult as possible to access unemployment insurance so that people are willing to take any low-wage job that comes their way. So having said that, at the sta every state has their own kind of system or setup, but most states the requirements are that you've worked a certain number of hours, that you've made a certain level of income, uh, that you can prove that through your pay stubs and what's been reported to the government, and also not just what's been reported to the government by you, but by your employer. So here was the problem for a lot of restaurant workers. I had a woman call me from Michigan named Sarah May, and I'll share your story, her story with you publicly because she's been on television talking about this. We've got her on MSNBC. But she said, I'm the mother of a sick child. I've been working at a dive bar in Michigan for a very long time, small town in Michigan, earning $3.62, which is the sub-minimum wage for tipped workers in Michigan. She said, as a bartender, I religiously reported my tips to the state, to, to IRS, to, to pay my taxes because I believe in that. But come time to apply, they say your boss never reported your tips. It looks like you earned too little with $3.52 plus tips to access. You didn't meet the minimum state threshold to qualify for benefits. Um, and, and so she was completely denied Michigan state unemployment insurance. Then the federal government, you all may know, 
at one point passed a $600 per week universal unemployment insurance for everybody in the country who had worked. And supposedly that $600 was not based on how many hours you worked or how much money you earned. It was supposed to be universal. But what happened to Sarah? Sarah May said, I applied for the federal because supposedly I should have gotten it regardless of my income. The federal government sent me a note saying I was, I was awarded the $600. I got it. But when I went to access it from the state of Michigan, I was not able to get a hold of them to reverse the denial that the state of Michigan had already issued for in my case. I was not able to reverse the denial to access the federal funds. So the requirements are... There's one thing is the requirements. Another thing is actually accessing the money. California does not have a subminimum wage for tipped workers. It's one of the seven states in the United States that got rid of it many decades ago because it is a uh, legacy of slavery, which I'll talk about more in later classes. You, of course, you definitely need a social security number. Only, only, only uh, citizens or documented people who have the right to work in the United States are able to access unemployment insurance. All right, great. Um, Karen, any other questions uh, from the chat uh, that we can go to? We have 10 minutes to, to ask, answer questions. Well, yeah, go ahead. Well, let me uh, go to Jeffrey uh, Zhao. He's on top of our list with his hand raised. Do you want to uh, unmute yourself and ask a question? Uh, yes, Professor Jairaman, I was hoping to get your opinion as to why the subminimum wage was a thing, like the history behind why it was implemented, and is there like any federal or state level movement to remove it or to move it back to the correct minimum wage? <laughs> just, just ask her what her life's work is. <laughs> Go ahead, answer your life's work in ten minutes. <laughs> uh, I actually think we have a class. We did. <laughs> yeah, that's my um, we we have a we have a class on income and inequality later in the semester, and I'm going to walk through the whole history of the subminimum wage, which actually originates in slavery. I mean, you know, let you know in each of these four areas. Let's be real. There are there are legacies of slavery in our health system, in incarceration, uh, obviously in policing, because it's a direct remnant of basically policing black people, even during slavery, in our economy. One of the direct remnants of, like, of slavery in our economy is this $2 wage. I'll talk about that history later in the semester. Even in climate change, there are direct remnants of where people live and how communities of color are subject, are frontline communities to toxics and to uh, climate change in a way that other communities aren't facing. So, um, so to answer your question, we will get into a lot more depth, Jeffrey, but just in sum, it is a direct legacy of slavery and there is a huge movement to fight it. And the image you saw of workers striking right as we speak in Times Square and in Chicago right now is part of that national movement to change it. Um, and President Biden, I mean, President Biden, sorry, Vice, Vice President. President Biden, sorry, <laughs> um, as a candidate for president, has endorsed eliminating the subminimum wage on three of his policy platforms, just FYI. Great. Um, so, Mason, do you want to unmute yourself and ask your question? Awesome. Um, Professor Jairaman, you were talking earlier about how the minimum wage has stagnated and how low... Um, 
poverty is and how 20,000 20, isn't even enough to, you know, pay the bills in most places. I was wondering, um, I know there's stagnation on the minimum wage level. Has there been stagnation in um, basically putting through new, uh, new minimums for poverty, et cetera, for different class structures since then? It's such a great question. Thank you for your question, Mason. Um, there's been stagnation both in the minimum wage and in the federal poverty level or federal poverty line. That has remained the same for decades without an increase or a recalculation or a reimagination of how federal poverty lines should be calculated. And that, frankly, is a bipartisan issue and something, again, why this is, can't just be about let's get somebody else into office because once somebody else comes into office and a new party is, is there, it doesn't mean that they change how people of color and poor people in this country are documented, measured, treated, uh, paid, right? It has not changed in decades and decades and decades. I mean, I told you that the minimum wage hasn't gone up for tipped workers in 30 years. That is under both Democratic and Republican administrations. And the same is true for the federal poverty level and the federal poverty line has not changed in decades. And so these are both things that we need to work on to really examine the current true reality of this country and the level of economic inequality that exists. Great. Um, so I'm just seeing a lot of questions in the, the chat that I, I, I don't want to about income inequality and what is it and why is it important and things like that. And what I'll say is we are going to give a full week's worth of lectures on this material. Uh, in some, so it's a tough question to be able to answer adequately in the, you know, the five minutes we have remaining. Uh, so what it's hard to say, you know, put a pin in the single major economic issue of our time, uh, but we are going to get to it uh, eventually. Let me, uh, I think we have time for two questions. So uh, uh, Rikita Kupam, Kupam, I'm sorry, I'm of course butchering everyone's name as well. It's my turn to do that. You want to unmute yourself and ask a question? Yeah, absolutely. So it's Ratika, um, but I had a, a question for Pro Professor Jayaraman. Um, so just in talking about the way that unemployment benefits are just structured in America, there's just, it's so astoundingly ineffective. I just have to ask is, um, is it all under the jurisdic jurisdiction of state and federal governments or do corporations perhaps have some sort of impact or some sort of say in how everything operates? <laughs> um, so uh, do you guys, some of you, have, have any of you ever seen the musical or movie Annie? <laughs> uh, <laughs> if any of you have seen Annie, um, it took place during the Depression and just as the New Deal was passing. And in that story, which was a, which was a fictional story, but based on reality, um, there was a corporate, you know, one percenter, Daddy Warbucks, who, whose name was, came from having made money off of war, um, who had ridiculous amounts of influence over the president. And that was true at that time. What happened in the, you know, and maybe this is a good place to end because it's important to understand our moment and the Great Depression that we are, I believe, already in and going to get much worse more deeply into. This is not a recession. We are in a depression. 
When 10 million people cannot feed their families and are about to be homeless, in one industry, that's just one industry, we are in a depression. So when we look at the last Great Depression, what happened with the last Great Depression? Um, people were starting to rise up. People started to, uh, to protest on the unemployment line. In fact, if you saw the image um, that we created of the 24-foot Elena, the essential worker, that, that's, we've created a 24-foot Elena essential worker. She stood in Times Square today. She had a mask that said, fight, don't starve. That comes from the 1930s. That was the slogan of people fighting on the unemployment insurance lines in the 30s, fight, don't starve. So there was this mass uprising. And people think of FDR as this benign, wonderful, like, you know, father of the nation who gave us the New Deal, the right to a minimum wage, the right to Social Security, the right to unemployment insurance. But the truth is, if you read books like Regulating the Poor by Piven and Cloward and other great books, you know that all of that was enacted out of fear that there would be a socialist revolution in, 19, in, in America by people, workers rising up across the country. I mean, keep in mind, this was right after the 1910s revolution that happened in Russia, right? So you got this potential revolution of workers happening as part of the depression and the New Deal was a way to provide the most sweeping changes we've ever seen, including minimum wage and the right to organize and the right to unemployment insurance, but done in a way that would appease people, but immediately put them back to work, done in a way that was really, go ahead. No, no, continue, you finish your point. Uh, done in a way that was about keeping them from revolting, keep, you know, stopping a socialist revolution, but at the same time, appeasing the daddy warbucks, making sure that the daddy warbucks got what they needed. So it's important to un understand that unemployment insurance was set up by capitalists like Daddy Warbucks who wanted to make sure that, yes, we've got, we all agree we have to set up unemployment insurance, otherwise we'll have a socialist revolution. We have to. But we've got to do it in a way that makes people immediately return to work as fast as we could get them. We don't want them living high on the hog, living off of unemployment insurance which is the exact same debate we're having right now over this $600. $600 has ended. I don't know if everybody knows. It's gone. And it's not coming back until Mitch McConnell in the Senate agrees to a deal with Nancy Pelosi. And that's not going to happen until they get over this concern. If we continue the $600, people aren't going to take any low-wage job that comes their way. So has this been shaped by capitalists, by corporations? Absolutely. The Amazons of the world are worried that if the $600 continues, as they were worried, as Daddy Warbucks was worried back in the 30s, that there will not be a willingness to earn less than that in the marketplace. So, I, that, I mean, that, that point is extremely important. We'll find a way to talk more about the, the New Deal and the Great Depression in particular. One thing I would also point to sort of draw a historical parallel. It comes from this book in particular, Ira Craselton's uh, book, Fear Itself, the, the New Deal and the Origins of Our Time, in which he argues very distinctly the two things that are relevant about the New Deal for this moment. First of all, is that Roosevelt had to win the 1932 election from the failed state of Herbert Hoover, the first Californian to become president. And secondly, that what drove the Congress in particular 
particular that created the 100 Days and the New Deal programs was, yes, on the one hand, the fear of a, of a, a left-wing revolution. But that fear of a left-wing revolution really propels the middle period of the New Deal, particularly the 1936 election, in which the CIO and unions have really begun to mobilize and are pushing the country in a very leftward direction and that the Democrats needed to get hold of. But before that, in 1932, the deep fear was that the United States, like uh, Germany, like Italy, like Japan and elsewhere, would in fact turn fascist. That fascism was really the threat of, in 1932 on a world horizon and that the United States needed to demonstrate that they could actually govern and address this crisis without surrendering democracy itself. Now, the irony of this is that in order to achieve that, in order to get the democratically necessary consensus to force the New Deal through, the New Dealers, the Rooseveltians and others, had to systematically exclude Black Southerners from nearly every aspect of the New Deal. It had to have an overtly anti-Black white supremacist politics in the South in order to prevent filibusters and to bring the Democratic Party coalition together to get this passed. So this is a hugely complex moment in American history, uh, particularly the early 1930s, as I think you saw in this comprehensive survey of what's at stake in this present moment. And yes, we are very much in that kind of 1932-1933 moment uh, in which not only do you have to win an election in order for reforms to even become possible, but the threat of fascism looms very large over this particular historical moment. Um, I, I would, I, this has uh, been a fascinating discussion. I want to thank you all. We are uh, two minutes over. So I will uh, bid you all adieu. We will see you all on uh, Wednesday, in which we will have uh, a fabulous guest speaker. Uh, and I look forward to seeing all of you again. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.